3: Consequence Podcast Network. Welcome to Consequence Uncut, a series that gives listeners and readers a deeper dive into our features with major artists.
1: For this episode, we're kicking off our celebration of the 50th anniversary of the genre of hip-hop with a crate-digging interview with Sendog of Cypress Hill.
0: That was an important record for me, I think for all of us too, because it kind of changed the whole rap outline, the rhyme outline. These guys rhyme different. They didn't sound like anybody else. We understood at that point, like, you have to have your own rhyming style. You know, you can't sound like anybody. You have to have your own thing that you're about. You just can't come out rhyming and just be a great rapper. You have to be about something. You got to touch people here in the head, in the brain. You know what I mean?
3: I'm Mijan Zulu, lead producer of Consequence Podcast.
1: I'm Ren Graves, the features editor at Consequence.
3: So, Ren, it's so good to see you here because I was afraid that everyone was going to think that Paolo was the only writer that worked for Consequence Media.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, we do have other journalists. And actually, I was supposed to be another journalist. Our music and news editor, Eddie Fu, was originally slated to interview Send Dog, but... I stepped in at the last moment, and it was a real treat for me because I've been a Cypress Hill fan for decades.
3: (laughs) I know. It was so cool in the interview how you mentioned that you used to be called Rendog in college. And, you know, basically, I feel like this was a long time coming for you. So like, you must have (laughs) felt like both nervous, but also like super excited. Was it cool? It feels always to me slightly embarrassing when (laughs) I have to reveal
1: myself, not as like a person who's always been a professional writer, but like a former extremely embarrassing fan. (laughs) But yes, I, in, um, in college, I had a friend and we did, let's call them Cypress Hill activities, the kinds of activities (laughs) where you have to hide things from your RA and blow a fan out the window in your dorm room. Um, and, and he heard that I was really, he learned that I was really into Cypress Hill and he started calling me Rendog in honor of Sendog. So I did tell, I did eventually, I didn't lead with that because I didn't want him to get that impression of me as like, you know, uh, an overgrown Stan. But I did eventually get to, to relate that story to him and assure him he looks much better in a bucket hat than I ever did.
3: <laughs> well, I feel like what's so great about this is not only did you get to meet, like, you know, basically one of your idols, but you got to have that conversation and learn about how he even decided to wear a bucket hat in the beginning, which is what is so cool about what we're doing at Consequence for Hip Hop 50.
1: Yeah, we really wanted to center our coverage on the 50th anniversary of hip hop around authentic artistic voices, the people who actually made the history. So the 50th anniversary is a celebration of DJ cool Herc's Back to School Jam. It happened in 1973. He was throwing a party for his sister, and he had figured out a way to do loops while DJing that nobody else had, had figured out before. And it's sort of considered the birth of DJ culture. It's considered a starting point for hip hop culture and lots of other cultural moments like beatboxing and break dancing and b-boy culture are all linked to this, this one apparently incredible party. Mm you know, talking to Send Dog, he didn't really know about that party when it happened. And he sort of only found out about it later when he was being asked to celebrate the 20th anniversary of hip hop or the 30th anniversary of hip hop. Yeah. But he did have so many amazing stories about West Coast hip hop, polar parties and and culture. And in his crate digging, which is our feature where we ask artists to pick essential albums from a specific genre, He selected a lot of not forgotten but under remembered gems from West Coast Mm, rap. mm. And it was a real pleasure for me to go back and listen to stuff that, you know, I had listened to a couple times when it came out decades ago. And and some stuff that I had never listened to. And one thing that you can't tell from the podcast or from the article, when he was talking about this stuff, he almost never stopped smiling.
3: Oh my god. He was having such
1: a great time. Just Living in such joy of this music that he had devoted his life to. It was really cool.
3: That is so beautiful. I mean, it I think in listening to the interview, he just felt so real, honest, and humble. He has a real love of hip hop. And for him, it's not something that, that he was a passive observer to. It's something that happened to him. Like hip hop and break dancing had started when he was a kid and he was just confronted by this cool new thing that was happening. And from watching all of these other artists who some, some of them you would actually make a connection between Cypress Hill and those artists, but some of them maybe not, they influenced how he created his rap persona. And it's so amazing to hear how he really loves group rap and really having a message that touches people's minds and hearts. Like, it's just, it. I mean, it it, it just shows why these 50 years of hip hop have really kind of just changed the world.
1: Yeah, perhaps unsurprisingly for someone in the most, one of the most influential hip hop groups of all time, but he has a, a real <laughs> appreciation for
3: groups, for hip
1: hop groups specifically, Yeah, and the way that one person can lift another person up with their energy.
3: I know. And you know what's so cool about this interview is that normally it would have just been a crate digging conversation, but the interview ended and then you were able to like ask him some more awesome questions about some of his other activities.
1: Yeah. He told us about performing with a live orchestra, which Simpsons fans will recognize. They had the idea <laughs> inspired by their own guesting on a Simpsons episode. So they're they're now performing.
3: Such a meta moment.
1: I know. Art imitating life, imitating art.
3: And no one even—I mean, I've—I've I've always loved rap rock, but it's so cool to hear him talk about his love of not only rap but rap rock.
1: Yeah, and he does rock and roll. He his group Power Flow is is a heavier sound. And then we also had the opportunity to talk a little bit about new metal, which wasn't super relevant to what's going on in his life but my colleague Jonah Kruger was working on a trend piece about new Metal none of uh, Sendog's quotes ended up making it into the piece but I did have the opportunity to to see if something would work um, and you know he's just a, a affable guy and and has opinions about everything so it was lovely to hear his thoughts on that too.
3: I know I'm so jealous that you got to do this interview I'm so excited for everyone to listen to it I mean Sendog just really is amazing.
1: Thanks Mijan. You can check out the full crate digging article on consequence.net There is a link in the show notes. Please subscribe to the podcast feed to stay up to date
3: with these in-depth interviews. And please, please, please leave us a review. We really appreciate it. It helps other people find our podcast and we get a better understanding of when we're doing something right. So now I'll turn it over to Rendog and Sendog of Cypress Hill.
1: (laughs) I'm never going to live that down. I shouldn't have admitted that. Please enjoy So let's kick it off with your uh, 10 essential albums. What do you have
0: first? One of the first albums that was very, very influential on our block as we were coming up was an album by a band called Ultramagnetic MCs. They had a a joint called Critical Beatdown, and there was a lot of similarities in Cypress Hill and Ultramagnetic as far as I think the structure of it all. And there was one of those records that we would listen to, you know, front to back. As soon as that last song was done, turn it around and flip it and play it. So the beginning right over again. And that was one of those records that still today, if you were to listen to it, it had a lot of groundbreaking stuff, but it didn't get that attention that I thought it deserved. Very underground, but full of just good songs and great rhymes. Critical beatdown by Ultramagnetic MCs.
1: That was cool, Keith, right?
0: Yeah, cool keys, Shay G, Mo Love, and T R Love. That was the band. And like I said, you know, wow. And then I actually got to meet them on my first trip to New York for the new music seminar. And they were aware of us. And it just blew it just blew my blew my whole my whole existence away.
1: So when you said that there were some structural similarities, do you mean in the way you guys approached a, a song or the way you built out your tracks? Or, or how did you mean that?
0: I think out of both, I think the the way that they attacked their song vocally. With Cool Keith being the main rapper, and then G coming in and reinforcing. It was kind of like Tom Be Real and I, you know, kind of interact. And I also think the uniqueness of their tracks, because back then, everything that came out of the Bronx sounded like it was from the Bronx. And then that was the first band that I heard that I really couldn't tell where they were from. But eventually they say it in the song, they shout out the Bronx a bunch of times. But at first I was like, wow, this is different. That's where those similarities, I think, come in.
1: And what was the second album?
0: Well, of course, uh, NWA record, the first record with all those great songs and, and all those great characters and them being, you know, basically they're from down the street from us in Southgate, even though they were from the other side of the color line, you know, the Bloods and the Crypting. We felt the connection with those guys because that we thought like, wow, if they could do it, then other kids from you know around here could do it, too. And they laid down a blueprint of, on how to do it. You know what I mean? Get your Dr. Dre, get your Ice Cube, get your Easy, you know, get all your essential cast members in order to do what you got to do. And I got to meet them with my brother Mellow Man, who had done a few shows with them in the late '80s. And I got to meet them and say hi, and they were cool dudes, you know. So their first record from N.W.A. I know people have said it, it was groundbreaking and all that stuff, but in L.A., it really, really shook the ground because they, you know, these are homeboys from L.A. and you know they're 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 rapping about things that we go through.
1: So when you say the first one, are you you're talking about Straight Outta Compton or are you talking about um, N.W.A. and The Posse?
0: I'm talking about Straight Outta Compton.
1: OK, just double checking because and the Posse came out, I think, the year before, but it was like a compilation. It wasn't really their first studio album.
0: Yeah. And and on that one, uh, one of my homeboys, Mexican homeboy, Crazy D was on the album cover and nobody ever shots him out for that. they like because you got like, about, you know, 10 brothers there. and Then there's Crazy D there. I'm like, and people always ask me, who is that dude? And um, I got to tell him it's Crazy D from around our way.
1: That's cool. And what's your uh, third album?
0: Public Enemies, Yo, Bum Rush, The Show. Wow. An album that I still listen to on the regular. The styles, everything was just, it was just sort of left field, you know? I could tell they were from the East Coast because of their accents, you know, to their voices. But man, the power that Chuck D came out with and the lunacy that Flavor Flav would exhibit and put on, he's uncontrollable. He's on his own, he's on his own planet. I loved it, man. I just love seeing that. And I love the representation of black culture that, that they came with and, and the outspokenness that they had saying things that people didn't want to hear and making them dangerous. And their logo was ill. You know, the, the B-boy with the scope around them. When I, I'm thinking about it now and it makes me smile because it was just so clever for the time. And then you had, you know, in my opinion, the greatest rapper of all time, Chuck D in there, kicking life facts. And it, it's funny because people look at him and they think the militant thing and the pro-black message and everything. But a lot of what Chuck was talking about could be applied to anybody's regular life. And I think that's what made him different as a as an MC. You have to really, really listen to his lyrics properly to understand he's coming from like a, like a humanitarian point of view. There's also that quality in it as well. So for that for that reason, those first public enemy records, especially um, It Takes a Nation a Million to Hold Us Back, When that record came out, that's all we listened to for at least three months. And we had friends that would not hang out with us because we would not take that record off. (laughs)
1: Everywhere everywhere
0: we went, we played that record. We were just fixated on it. But the first one, Bum Rush, the show, I think had a lot of, uh, it had a gangster quality to it as well. And I became enthralled in it and just listening to Chuck's voice. And my 98 Oldsmobile is... that was just great. And I put that up there along, you know, some of the best, some of my best hip hop records that I like to listen to. You,
1: you talked about this a little bit, but, but what about him makes him the best Chuck D in your opinion?
0: In my opinion, it's the, the force in his voice. He's a rhyme stylist. He'll, he can approach tracks differently and it all come out dope. He could use a hardcore in your face, you know, approach, Or he could do a laid back, kind of like just breezing through the song, kind of barely talking. He did those styles on Bum Rush the show. And then it gets to the point where they did the song sophisticated and it had like a rock riff on it. And I've always been a fan of rock and roll and and funk and hip hop together. When they came out and they did that, they had me hooked right then and there. And then... It was the song with the Slayer riff on it. I can't remember the name of it right now. But they totally, that was the band that definitely was the different band out of all the hip-hop bands. From their look to their stage performance to their sound, they were were something else. They were from a different planet. Don't mess with those dudes, you know what I mean? That made me a fan of theirs instantly. Was it She Watched Channel Zero? She Watched Channel Zero. She Watched, She Watched Zero. And it had, I believe, was the Slayer riff on there. And then... There was a connection there because I went to high school with Dave Lombardo. So there was kind of like, wow, these guys use your guys' music, man. It's incredible. But that's when we knew that, you know, hip hop was moving in a different direction. And it was an exciting time for hip hop, man. You know, man, people were just coming out with different styles of hip hop and different cultures. And it was great. You know, I'm glad that I had that opportunity to grow up in there.
1: Do you feel like different parts of hip hop's journey have been more exciting than others?
0: Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I've always been more drawn to controversial artists, outspoken artists. I've always been drawn to like a more hard sound a more street sound. And I I think that there's people that have different approaches and it just doesn't interest me, man. I'm not into the happy rap stuff. I'm into the hardcore reality. You could get shot out here on these streets type of rap.
1: What did you have for your fourth record?
0: That would be um, Run DMC, Kings of Rock. Again, another hip hop band that enjoyed playing, you know, didn't mind having some guitar rock on there. That's when anybody that that messes around with that for me is a winner. So when I was listening to that stuff, I was like, wow, this is incredible. From the first time I heard Run DMC was life changing because that was the the first band that I saw that made me want to do what they were doing. I heard a song from there. It's like that. It's like that. And that's the way it, it. Right. I heard it on the radio and I was like, man, this is cool. And then that weekend, they're performing it on Soul Train. And my whole get down was Saturday, I would go and get a 40 ounce and some weed and watch American Bass Dance and Soul Train. And I turn it on and there's that these guys awesome. Are- yeah, they got their leathers and their hats, their shoes are untied, and and I was like, they look like they're from Mars. And uh, I was I was hooked right then and there, and I became a, a big Run DMC fan. And I told them I told them the story when I met them, You know what I mean? And they were laughing, and you know, but I was like, yeah, man, I used, that was my whole thing. I used to go get, I used to go get nice and watch, you know, Soul Train, and you guys were on it, and it changed me, and it, it really did change me. It, it got me thinking of like, how can me and my friends become that?
1: Do you still have something like that routine? Like that experience of like grabbing a brew and bud and like chilling on a Saturday afternoon or don't you have that luxury anymore?
0: No, I still have that same routine. You know what I mean? But now it's since there's no longer these TV shows don't exist. So it's all about just going in my studio and just blasting, you know, some of my favorite hip hop jams of all time as loud as they could go and just sit there and, and veg out for a while and just kind of like reminisce on what a, what a great existence this hip hop has afforded me and given me. It's been a wild ride, you know. I've been able to support my family and have kids behind it, and then grow up into it. And I, i never would have thought that a, that music that I fell in love with when I was 16 years old was gonna reward me with all that. Right.
1: Yeah. And so, what's, um, what's your fifth album?
0: That would be, um, my brother Melomanes' his first record, "Escape from Havana." Mm-hmm groundbreaking, really, really opened up the Latino rhyme style, the bilingual rhyme style. He opened a lot of doors for a lot of Latino kids that would come behind him and leave their mark on this hip hop industry. But without him, without him and his song Mentirosa, how long would it have taken for us to get there? I got him down there on that list because there's so much other stuff that I love and respect, but I I also respect him for what he did for hip hop and Latino kids in, in general with coming up with his bilingual, you know, style, because prior to that, there wasn't really that style didn't really exist. It wasn't like out there like dominating until him. And, you know, he had some really good songs on there and and then he had myself on a song. He had Be Real on a song. He had DJ Muggs produce a song. So Escape from Havana was definitely something that left us feeling like we're next. We're definitely next. We knew it was right there. It was right there at at our grasping and we just had to get it. And, you know, I think he put it out there and and now look at it now with uh, all this Bad Bunny stuff and Pitbull and, and all this stuff. Melo was one of the pioneers of that style and, you know, one of the guys that brought it open.
1: I knew you were on one of the tracks It's uncredited. Which which track was B-Real on? I don't know if
0: B's on a song or if he wrote a song for him. Okay. I think he might have written a song for the record. I think the song called uh, River Cubanos or something like that. And then return, Melo gave us a song. and He had uh, penned the original real estate for the first Cypress Hill record. That was the interaction between us back then. We were very proud of him and his success that he had. And like I told you, it left us feeling like it's coming up for us. It's around the way.
1: That's great. Sixth album. I think I'm counting, right?
0: <laughs> um, I'm going to go with uh, one of the hometown favorites, uh, Kid Frost with this album, Rasa, because there was a uh, he represented so hard for his culture. My God, dude, it was so it was just on from like the whole Zoot Suit to the, the low rider cars, cholo rap and all that stuff. And again, it had the, the, the mellow man ace effect of, oh, wow, I'm turning he's turning the culture on to so many other people around the world that that Perhaps hadn't seen what how people how it's done in East L.A. How it's the lowrider cars and the, and the bicycles and the lowrider bikes with the loud pipes and all that stuff. That was an introduction to the world for a lot of that stuff. And you look at in places like Japan where the lowriding and the cholo cultures are very big. And I think that Frost's record had something to do with opening opening that section of life up to making it more accessible to other cultures. And also, you know, the fact that he was doing it from the homeboy, the cholo homeboy point, point of view aspect and opening that door also. You got rappers today that are being successful using that style, you know, like Little Rob, and guys like that, that that are out there performing and, and, and flexing that cholo style. And I think we need that. I really do. I think we need that. For, and Frost left that door open for a lot, for anybody to come through it and be successful at it. And I put, I put it in and I'm putting these records a level of importance to me and how I feel that they changed hip hop and made it a better industry overall. So that's where I put, you know, Kid Frost at.
1: Are there any songs from that one that that you still find yourself going back to or like moments that you're real, that you still really love?
0: Obviously, Yeah, man. Well, back in those days, we would roll with Kid Frost, be real and myself and we'd go do his shows. Yeah, you know, we had a little thing back then called the Latin Alliance. And it was us and a whole bunch of other Latino MCs that would roll with Frost. And let's say he had an hour to perform, right? And he would do about 45 minutes and then bring us all on stage to freestyle the rest of those 15 minutes. And he was giving us a lot of, a lot of kids and in that time, their first taste of what it's like to perform to in front of a big audience. I had already done it and, and Be Real had already done it with my brother, but those were some of the first few stages that I hit. And then he would give you like these proper introductions, you know, like, up next, ladies and gentlemen, Mellow Man H's brother, Sin Dog. And the people would be like, oh my God. And it was a fun time. You know, we all had a blast learning how to perform, how to how to rhyme together and how to make the most out of this hip hop thing. And when they did Mellow Man H and Frost together on concerts, those were the best. You know, a lot of the LA, uh, the Lowrider Super Shows at the Coliseum, they were performing there. And those were, big big shows at the time and those two guys man they, they had it locked down for many years it they, they was those two guys are you know promoters always went back to pack the house
1: any chance y'all are going to get together again
0: hopefully yeah you know we're all we're all still bros we're all still friends and i know i i see frost he's doing this thing around there and it would be great to do something you know like that take it back to the 88 and have all the bands on on there be, it would be something that would be something we're talking about for real
1: What's your next album?
0: Back to the East Coast with the EPMD and their first album. I don't remember the name. I think it's "Gusty Chill or or something like that. It's the first, the first, very first record. And they, Strictly Business? Strictly Business, yeah. Every one of their albums has a business in it. When I first heard Eric Sherman rhyme, oh my God. It's just one of those voices that took you somewhere else. I'm like, this guy's got it. And then PMD, they both had it. Their first four records, I was just all over them. And they came with a different style too, because they, they were, I think they were from like Long Island or something. So they, they were, they were on some, you know, some boondock, you know, from out there. And their styles were different, you know, the way they rhymed were different. They stood out, and that's one of the, the band that I actually got the bucket hat idea from was from them.
1: Oh yeah. And if you look, at,
0: yeah, if you look at their first albums, they're wearing those bucket hats, those same bucket hats. The only difference with mine is that I had mine embroidered with my, with Cypress Hill on it. But when I saw that, I was like, "Oh, they they look cool." And in East LA, the Pachuco's, the Cholos, they used to wear those hats, you know, with the Pendletons on. And I'm like, "That's where I'm gonna give it my flavor from." Yeah, I'm gonna wear the hat, but I'm gonna wear, you know, from LA style, East LA style. And but I didn't see it until they they had it on. I was like, and it just blew my mind. So that's that's where that whole thing for me came from. And that, that was an important record for me, I think for all of us, too, because it kind of changed the the whole rap outline, the rhyme outline. These guys rhyme different. They didn't sound like anybody else. And We understood at that point, like, you have to have your own rhyming style. You know, you can't sound like anybody. You have to have your own thing that you're about. You just can't come out rhyming and just be a great rapper. You have to be about something. You got to touch people here in the head, in the brain. You know what I mean? And, I, and that record, it was just full of really, really good encyclopedia bonafide hip hop, junkie style rhyming. And they just took it to the next level. I really like that record, for sure. Number seven? Number seven, Tribe Called Quest. Ooh, which one? The very first one, man. Kick the rhyme, y'all. That record was just so, so good. And again, another record that changed the musical outline of hip hop because no one, I didn't hear any, any kind of musical production like that kind of production. At, up until that point. And the rhymes the rhyme were slick. And they had a they had a cool one too, you know, with Fife Dog and Q-Tip. Their back and forth was on point And they just made, like, a really, really good... Because I've always been into, like, hip-hop bands. Hip-hop solo artists are great. And I love them and everything. But if you want to get me going, throw some group on, some bands. You know, three or four guys making one sound. And that record right there, I mean, it just had it. You know, the Bonita Apple Bomb and all that all that great music off of that album. Wow. It was just, you know, in any of these records that I'm, I'm mentioning to you, you could put, you could mix and match the number however you want. That's the level of greatness that I'm talking about. That, that tribe called quest record, that first record. Um, it just, and I, when I, and I, and I, when I listened to it, it reminds me of like a, a hot summer day, in New York City, walking down the street, downing a 40 ounce, you know, like what we used to do back in the days when we used to visit New York. And it carries a great vibe. It's just a, a beautiful record. Beautiful, beautiful record.
1: Was was like the the sense of humor that they exhibited on like I left my wallet in El Segundo or whatever. That was. Yeah. that. I don't know how common that was, but that was one of the first times I heard a song. I was like, oh, hip hop can be funny.
0: Yeah, definitely. Definitely. You, it, it, and it could have a sense of humor. It didn't, it didn't always have to be something serious. And I think that those guys approach to it was brilliant for, for what they did. And they, they were like, they, when they came in, it was like a breath of fresh air because in one rhyme where I forget which one of them says it, you know, it's stay away from me because I ain't no criminal, you know, I was like perfect line. It doesn't always have to be about shoot them up, bang, bang. And, and all that stuff it could just, it could, hip hop could just be hip hop. It could, be friendly. It could be nice. It could be inviting. And they captured all that in, on that record. All
1: right. So number eight.
0: Beastie Boys, License to Hill. Okay. I can't leave that off this list. That 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 record was so important to hip hop and music in general and the future of it. And I don't know if they knew that when they were making that record. Of course, they found out afterward because it sold a trillion records. But when that record first came out and, and all the styles that were on it and the voices, the characters, what they rhymed about, and all the phrasing about, because I'm on that dust and and all that brass monkey and all that stuff. It was brilliant. I I thought it was great. We were really, really, really big into the Beastie Boys. And a funny thing is, we would eventually, in 1992, get a chance to tour with the Beastie Boys and open up for them. And that's the same tour that we met Eric Bobo on, who was playing for the Beastie Boys. And we struck a friendship up with him and eventually we joke about it now, but it wasn't funny back then, but that we stole Eric Bobo from the Beastie Boys. <laughs> so that was that record, License to Hill and the second record as well, were both masterpiece theater. But you listen to that first record, even now today, it still sounds like it could have came out last month. That's how good it was.
1: We had a debate in staff, License to Hill or Paul's Boutique. I was a Paul's Boutique guy, but I respect people who say License to Hill. Paul's Boutique
0: was, you know, High Plane Drifter and all those songs were incredible. And their whole their whole level of creativity that those guys expressed throughout their career was was unmatched, is unmatched. There's still no one that was quite as ill a B-boy as those three dudes were. An example for me is like that video they did. I think they're in Japan and they're going to the train station and they got these work outfits on with these white boots. And they're just doing these hip hop moves and stuff and rapping in the video. To me, that was just the best you could get at, at being creative at something and taking it to the next level of like of expressing yourself with your music. They had that ability. They always did. And that's what made them a really, really great band. One of the best in, in these 50 years of hip hop, the Beastie Boys have been, I think, one of the best bands of all time.
1: You said earlier that that you personally are attracted to groups a little bit more than solo artists. What is it about the group energy that appeals to you?
0: I think it's the multi-member aspect of it all. Like uh, when you look at Public Enemy in those days and you had Chuck D and he was the outspoken, you know, vocal piece. And then you had Flavor Flav who was the wild card. Then you had Professor Griff and he was no joke. He said things that were just crazy. And then you had the S1Ws and they didn't talk, they just moved. Then you had Terminator X, not only with one of the best names of all time, but the brother was serious up there and he looked very militant and he didn't smile at all. And, and it was just a great package to look at. And I, I, I think that when you have that, that aspect of it all, and I think now looking back at it, I think it goes back to my upbringing of funk music during the seventies and, and all the great funk bands that were around in those times and all the different characters that were in those bands, like Parliament Funkadelic had a dude that just wore a diaper you know, Diaper Man, you know what I mean? And then you had George and then you had uh, Devoid of Funk and, and all these different characters, you know what I mean? And and that the early hip hop bands, they when they started, they came up with, they had the same kind of like format and you had different characters like Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five. You had guys that were all in one group, but they were all different rappers and they were kind of different. N.W.A. had all these crazy different gangsters in it. You know, from the short guy, Easy E, which to me was like the crazy dude out of all of them, to like the mastermind, Dr. Dre. You know, this, dude, I've always generated more towards that than, you know, your solo artists. I've always liked the group aspect more. And I think it carries more of a punch, even though I love like LL Cool J and, and Bismarck E and all those and all that. I love that. I absolutely love that. But I've always just dug the, the band aspect more.
1: All right. Number nine.
0: All right. We're getting down there. I think my favorite. Huh? Wow. Digital Underground, first record in the Hunty Hunt.
1: Oh, yeah.
0: No, it, I forget what they called it. Sex packets or something like that. Yeah. yeah
1: sex packets. Uh, you, you got it.
0: Sex packets. And we we were we met them at a barbecue. Their first time they came to L.A., we, I met up with uh, Money B. Me and him, we struck up a friendship. We started hanging out with them, me and Be Real we started going on and and basically being on the side of the stage there while they performed and just learning and soaking up all their energy and everything that they were doing on the stage. And they turned a hip hop show into a sideshow, into a circus. That was their show back then. That was how mm-hmm. wild they were. And and we we've picked up on it way back then. Like you can never let the audience get comfortable on their feet. Always keep them jumping, always keep them moving, always keep them involved always keep them shouting. And that we learned from Digital Underground, from being there on the side of the stage, watching those dudes do it. And I remember one day they came up to Hollywood and the Money B calls me up and I, I'm like, yeah, I'll come to the hotel. I went up there and I uh, go, hey, As I, up to that point, Money B's brother had been touring with him, his name was Cullen. And I asked him for Colin. where's Cullen at? He's like, oh, he's not with us no more. I want to shock G's homeboys, Tupac is with us. And he tells me, he's down in that room over there in 118. Why don't you go over there and say what's up to him? All right, cool, whatever. I never met the guy. He went over there and knocked on the door. He answered the door. He's talking to some girl. And I introduced myself and I say, hey, man, I'm i send dogs from, from the crew, Cypress Hill. I'm Money B's homeboy. And he says to the girl on the phone, he goes, hey, baby, I got to call you back. The weed just got here.
1: <laughs> and he hangs up the
0: phone and he invites me in and I, I smoked him out. And that was the first time I met him. And that was, we hit it off again, right away, like really good. Like that's how Pac was. And we became friends from that day on until the day he passed away. We were tight. We were cool homies. And that's one of my memories I have of digital from hanging around with them. But aside from that, from that moment of meeting Pac, just watching them on stage and how they did it and how they got down, it was infectious. And that's the kind of show that I knew, I knew from just talking to B, and this was before we were even signed. We didn't even have a deal yet. But we wanted our show to be something like that, something outrageous like that, where they, where we, the fans never got a chance to rest. And now looking back on it, our show is like that. So that's definitely, it was Hip Hop 101 hanging with those guys during that time.
1: Yeah, yeah, that was history. Number 10.
0: All right, here we are, number 10. huh? Something from the late 80s, something West Coast. I would say uh, the DOC. The hmm. D.O.C.'s, I think what I was first and only album, I think because I think he had a, a severe car accident that derailed his career. But if you listen to that first, that the, that D.O.C. record with, with the song, is it funky enough on there? And that took L.A. by storm and eventually took the country by storm. And, and to this day, I don't want I don't want to say a, a forgotten rapper because I'd never forgot him. But there's been so many other MC's that have come along since then that have contributed in a, in a great way. But the D.O.C. was an incredible rapper in in his own right. And after he couldn't deliver records anymore, he wrote on a lot of Dr. Dre records on The Chronic and stuff like that. So he's still contributing to hip hop. And, you know, Dr. Dre kept looking out for him. And when you look, you you just have to listen to that first album because he exhibits a lot of different vocal styles and patterns and, and stuff like that that make you that would pop out, make your ear pop out. I could only imagine and if he had more records, if he could have delivered more records, what a bigger contribution he would have made. Because I, I believe one of the best rappers to come down that Dr. J production line, for sure. And there's a whole lot. But that first record, that, that DOC first record was amazing. Just coming up with that idea right now of naming off that record makes me want to listen to it again right now. It was a great record, really good record. And you know, just a shame we couldn't have more from him. But definitely worth the, the number 10 spot on mm-hmm. that, on that list for sure.
1: Thank you. So I, I wasn't going to lead with this, but I'll tell you now in school, cause you know, my name's Ren and in school, a, a guy who knew I was really into Cypress Hill used to call me Ren dog. So this is, he's going to be excited to hear about this, but I will tell you, I look like shit in a bucket hat.
0: <laughs> it, it's all about how you style it, man.
1: <laughs> so you guys are performing with an orchestra coming up because you guys did that Simpsons episode was that where you got the idea from or was it unrelated?
0: No, of course, that's where the idea came from. <laughs> and it came from it came from somewhere out of left field. It wasn't even somebody said, hey, wouldn't it be crazy if you guys did that and started started pushing that, pushing forward and pushing forward and pushing forward. So it started becoming a reality. It's a first of its kind for for hip hop. For I don't think there's any hip hop artists that have done a a concert with a symphony you can correct me if i'm wrong but i think it's the first of its kind there's a lot of things have been done so let me not speak out of term but it's definitely from the homer palooza episode that the idea comes from
1: so have you guys already started like planning things out with the with the orchestra do you know what's how it's going to go down or what's that process been like
0: we have a rehearsal today with the denver orchestra here in denver that's going to be the first time that we get together with an actual orchestra. We've had rehearsals with the charts and everything. We know what it's going to sound like, but this is the first time we're going to get on down together. So it's, it's it's all a, you know, first time for us. So as we go, we're figuring out how it's going to go and how we're going to do it.
1: I hope it goes well. What was it like doing that Simpsons episode?
0: It was cool. It was an empty room with a microphone in it. And the three of us took turns delivering our line. It wasn't, I, I thought like all the actors that played the voices were gonna be there, but it wasn't, it was just some engineering guy mixing the sound in us and so we went in there and did it. When I see that episode and I listened to my voice back then, I could hear the the nervousness and almost the shyness in my voice that was just like, it was also new to me. Where now, if I was to do that now, I think I'd be more Steven Tyler about it. Hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'd be, more, I'd be more of a natural for it, but it was, it is what it is for back then.
1: Next month, everybody, and maybe it's already started, people are celebrating the 50th anniversary of DJ Herc's Back to School Jam. Is that something that you knew about when it happened? Or is that something that is like only in retrospect achieved some significance? Or what is your relationship with that moment?
0: I think in retrospect, it's been achieving more significance as the years have gone by. I don't remember at some point I started hearing about and being the first the first guy to start this movement and then it actually then it actually have a a year that went along with it so now we have a character and a year and i've been aware you know the hip-hop when it turned 20 and 30 and this and that and then i knew that 50 was coming because of the fact that someone put a someone predated it to the back in 1970 or fucking something that's when it started so i've been definitely aware that we've been on this path and our our 50-year anniversary was coming up based on what Cool Herc did back in the day, which said in motion, b-boyism, rhyming, graffiti, break dancing, DJing, all the elements were put forth when Cool Herc did that.
1: So what was your earliest memory of hip-hop?
0: Okay, growing up, I was hardcore into baseball. I'm Cuban, so that's what my dad was pushing on me was baseball. And not until I heard Malcolm McLaren, three buffalo gals, Two little girls going around the outside, around the outside. That was like the first hip hop culture song, I guess you could say that I heard. And then I saw a video for it and they were doing, it was a weird video too. One of my friends was really into it too. And I saw when I went to, I went to a gone to baseball practice and I saw my buddy and a bunch of his friends were doing this crazy dancing shit on the floor. And I asked him, dude, what, what kind of style of dancing is? This? Like, no, it's called breakdancing, bro. Hip-hop, you know. And from that point on, I just started getting into it more and more and more. But my beginning to it was that Malcolm McLaren song, Three Girls.' That Gals, that opened the door for me.
1: And then this is also the 30th anniversary of, of Black Sunday. As time has gone on, do you feel like your relationship to that album has changed at all?
0: Yeah, yeah, it has. When it came out and it was the number one record in the world, and we—I forget who we took down from number one. It's like you two or Janet Jackson or somebody. It was a badge of honor. We're number one in the world, and and that was what it was for me. It was it was a great record that I reached number one, and we took over, and that's what it was for me for a long time. And now, and not to me, it's a whole lot. It's a whole different thing. It to me, it's it's a a culture thing. It's almost a way of life. If you if you when you listen to the people that we meet that are that are fans of ours that have bought that record and listened to it. And, and they tell you how they changed their life and things like that. I look at it differently. I look at it as something that hip hop needed. And I look at it more as like, almost like a doctrine, like a thesis, something that people weren't ready for, but they got anyways. When you got the album and you opened it up and there was 20 facts on why cannabis and hemp are good for the world and why companies got together to make it illegal and all those facts were all groundbreaking and eye opening. People hadn't hadn't given you those facts about cannabis. That's why it was deemed A1 drug, A1 narcotic in a lot of communities. And no one had dared to bother to try to break that stereotype down until we did. And now that I look back on it, we were taking a lot of bold steps. But this is something that we believed in. We weren't just potheads just to be potheads to get the munchies and laughs. We were into it because we knew that it had elements in it that could help sick people, and it could help them. It could help environments that have been ravaged and damaged from plastics and and air pollution and all that. And we knew that reading High Times magazine, it was all in there. All that information was in there, and we were reading it every time it came out. We would get it first day and read it front to back. Sometimes two or three times because all that information was in there. And we knew that when Muggs told us that we had to be about something, he said for a cheap term, you guys need a gimmick. And we didn't have a gimmick. And he came up with one. He goes, you guys are the biggest potheads that I know. You guys need to be like the Cheech and Chong of hip hop. You too. And that was his idea. And we were smoking a joint at the time. And we looked at each other. we were like, why? Why us? <laughs> <You know>?
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: and he came with that idea and we took it and ran with it. But. We didn't just take it and become party boys behind it. We had our knowledge from the high time magazines that told us why cannabis was made illegal, why it was legal for a long time, and then made illegal, and then why they put it as the name, one narcotic, and why you go to jail for it, and people were sitting in prison for life for it. And these were all things that vexed us, man. It got us upset. It made us want to represent the culture even more because we didn't think there was anything wrong with just smoking a dupe. It was ridiculous and that gave us that helped give us our identity and we took it from there and once we did the high tides uh photo shoot front cover it was on from there the, the kind of gra- the kind of weed that we got and everything just went up in levels and it was great and people started to recognize us for being those activists that we still are
1: have you noticed a shift in cannabis culture since it has become more legally accessible
0: Yes, yes, I I have. I, I mean, as far as the the quality, we'll just start there. As far as the quality of it, um, it definitely has gotten better. Like I'm sitting here in in uh, in Denver, Colorado today, and I'm seeing all the progress that this city has made by being one of the first cities to go completely legal recreational. And it's it's not even a big deal. You could stand out in front of, the, just walk down the street smoking a joint, no one even notices. That's how normal it's become. Yeah, and I think that. I think that's where it has to go with a lot of these cities in America. I need to adapt that same mentality. And I, I, I think that once the stereotype of it all is looked at differently, because there's still people that try to battle it and try to make it look like a drug or, you know, or narcotic or whatever. And for that reason, I tell people just because we're legal in so many states doesn't mean anything. The struggle, the fight still continues because of the fact that there's people in it are still trying to bring it down there's still a big part of a, of a fight of a struggle that, that continues and you got to be on the front lines to figure it out. We were further taught more by a guy named Jack Herrera who wrote a book called the emperor wears no clothes. He's passed away now. He was famous for his work in the cannabis field and he took us under his wing. And when he met us, He sat us down and gave us a bunch of more facts that we didn't have no idea about. So then we became even more enthralled in the cannabis community. And I think that when you go to other countries like Amsterdam, you go to Holland and you visit Amsterdam and you see how just normal it is there um, and how far they've gotten with the medical use of it all. It makes you feel like in America, we're decades, maybe even more further back than we are medically because they're used in, in some kind of parts of the world. They use hashish to treat conditions for mental illness and things like that. It goes really deep. So we just wanted from our end, we wanted to do our part as people that believe in the power of the cannabis. We wanted to definitely take it to that level of like, we know what we're Mm -hmm. talking about. We're not just a bunch of potheads getting hungry after we smoke and laughing. We're serious about what we're talking about here. It created a culture change. I really believe it did because behind us, Noob Dog came out and he's a big advocate. And the Black Crows came on their big advocate and they just, dominoes started just falling in place. And a lot of people started backing the movement up to the point where it got a lot of attention, not just on the streets, but in government levels. And here we are in a city that's completely legal. Los Angeles, California is completely legal. Oregon, Washington, New York. There's a lot of states that I followed suit. And I think it all goes back to that movement that we started in the early nineties.
1: Uh, it's been a little over a year since the last Cypress Hill album, Back in Black. Now that the dust has settled, are you guys thinking about doing another one or, or not yet?
0: We're talking about maybe doing one last one, like traditional album and then from then on switching up the the process of how we release music. You know there's one thing that we've learned in this music industry is that it's constantly changing. It never stays the same. When we came out, we, our first record was done on reel to reel. That's how far back that goes. So we know that to stay in, to stay current with the game, you got to figure out how to market it different, how to sell it differently. And so we're we've been in talks about what we're going to do after that last album. It's all up in the air right now, so I can't call it one way or the other what we're going to do after that album.
1: And what about Power Flow?
0: Yeah, yeah. We have a new record. It's done. And if Cypress Hill right now, we're in our busiest calendar year ever It's going down now. So that record has to wait till 24. And and also Billy Graziati, um, he has, they have Biohazard back out. So that's taking up a lot of his time. So we, we're going to release it next year, hopefully around spring. And it's. It's a lot, it's a lot heavier record than the last one. Yeah, uh, we definitely, yeah, we definitely stepped up the the metal on, I think, on this album. So, uh, but I think it'll create a good contrast with the first record and and it'll be fun to perform. But yeah, Power Flow together and we have actually my bass player, Christian Wolbers for Power Flow. He's here now in Denver. He's going to play with the orchestra with us. He's going to be playing an upright bass. So we're we're all heavily involved in music still and, and still making it happen, man. And can't wait to do Power Flow again. At our very top in Europe, we did a we did a show and we were on the same bill with uh, Guns N' Roses and Judas Priest and things like that. <laughs> And we were like, "Whoa, this is great!" So we look forward to doing that again and getting out there and touring it and just throwing some metal around. Man, there's nothing, there's nothing funner in life. I, I think.
1: Hell yeah! Why do you think that? Because you're not the only hip hop artist who has been drawn to to metal. What do you? Why do you think that that there's this sort of like connection between the two genres?
0: Hip hop and metal, they both have this thing about "fuck you" if you don't like me what I mean, it ain't going to stop anything. And metal has a lot of the same energies that hip hop has, has a lot of the same mentality too. And I think for that reason, the first guy that I ever seen do metal that was a hip hop was Ice T. And we go back to Ice T to the early 80s. That's how long I've known the guy. When I seen him do body count, I was like, oh, wow, that's different. But I've always enjoyed like Megadeth and Pantera and things of that nature. But I never gave a thought about doing it until i see nice Ice-T doing it. And I have no problem giving them that kind of respect. I grew up with Dave Lombardo. We went to high school together. We're from the same area that Slayer's from. And I, I never was down on me, like, maybe I should try that, until I saw Body Count. But Until then, it was just like a listening pleasure for me, something to vibe to. And just, we used to listen to Motley Crue shout at the devil before football practice. And it would be all these all these guys, all these black dudes, basically, that we played ball with, and they all love. That they loved that song, "Shout at the Devil," and my little sister had the wax version of it on record. And they would come over before practice and be like, "Play the record, Sam! Play the record!" So I play the record for them, and they get all hyped up, and then we go play football. But we always, I've always enjoyed that the whole the traditional metal setup: the lead singer, the guitar player, the bassist, the drummer, just the classic metal setup. I've always enjoyed watching that kind of metal. And then, you know, I started, and then we started messing around with it. I did a band that was called SX-10. And we ended up being like a rap metal band, but we didn't start that way. We started being more like a punk, punk rap metal band that the label turned into a punk metal band because I was the end thing at the time. And I just kind of fell into a groove and I started liking it and loving it, which led me to Power Flow. And I had, I had been working with Billy Graziati. He would call me up when he was producing somebody and they were like, hey man, I got you some money to be on this record with these kids and they want you to rap. So I'm like, okay. So I'd go down there and I'd always ask him, hey, have you wrote me any songs? And he'd be like, no, no. Like 10 times he'd tell me no until one day he was like, yeah, I wrote you something. So we started writing together and we went from there. And before you know, we had we had like a half a record done. I got a deal for it. And then they came back and said, we want an album. I decided to put a band together and got Billy and Christian and Roy, and we started Power Flow. But that was only because the label asked for an album. If not, I wasn't going to go that way. They wanted, I was thinking about performing that same music with a DJ out of a hip hop format, but doing metal out of a hip hop format. And then somebody talked me out of that and I'm I'm glad they did.
1: Do you have feelings about like the genre that's often called new metal? It was early attempts at rap metal combinations, corn and Limp biscuit, and things like that.
0: Yeah, Faith No More, the thing they threw the beginner, they're, they're opener, the opener at the beginning of that. I, I I like New Metal. I really do. I like the Deftones, Tones, Biscuit, limb Biscuit was great. Corn is an excellent band. There's there's top tier band, Corn. There's a people have also put a down in, in that same genre of New Metal. I, I've always enjoyed that. I've always felt that the rhyming style of vocals goes well with almost anything. And especially with metal music that is meant to get an emotion out of you. And that new metal for sure did that for me. And I think it was one of the best times in music when all those bands were going and hitting strong and, and they were playing all of us on K-Rock all day long. And it was Cypress Hill and System and Linkin Park, and Corn and everybody else, all those bands, Deftones, and we were all on the radio during that day. And then everything that we put out, they were jumping all over. Rage Against the Machine, you know, another one. Those were all bands that got worldwide, that achieved worldwide domination. And I think that new metal, for whatever it's worth, I don't know about the whole new metal name that they came up with for it. Um, with the
1: umlauts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. But I definitely like what the work that we put in during those years. I thought it was incredible. I don't know where the radio station programmers decided okay, we've had enough new metal. We're going to go to something else. Because to me, it's it's still a, a
1: badass genre. It's coming back a little bit. Yeah, one of my colleagues actually is is working on a story right now about how new metal, which was like seen as this like sort of white male genre when it first came out, has been reinterpreted by like people of color and women of color, and like finding new outlets for for that expression.
0: Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I I don't think the genre has gone anywhere. I think it has stood right there in place where it's always been. I mean, I just think that once Hollywood and and the movie business and radio stations decided that we've had enough or that they stopped paying attention to it, people think, Oh, you metal done or dead or whatever. That's not true, man. You know, that's definitely not true. It's, it's the other way around. It goes into what goes around, comes around. Cause definitely it'll come back around again, even more stronger and more popular.
1: Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today.
0: All right, for sure, man. Just uh, a little shout out to, you know, all the Cypress Hill fans around the globe. Thank you for all the love and respect and support that they've given us for the last 33 and 34 years. It means everything to us and we love them for that. And that's why we keep coming back. Been a blast.